Today's reading is 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 23. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The word of the Lord. Well, friends, uh, it's good to be back up here preaching after a couple of week hiatus um, that I had and, and last weekend, as I mentioned earlier, and I hope, as you all know, in this room, you should, that, that 14 people from this church ran the Twin Cities Marathon, and right now, you know, 
Matt and Brent, they got, they're getting close to halfway, at least halfway through. Nate, you can give us a progress report, please. That would be helpful. We can get to it by the end of this intro, too, and it won't interrupt the rest of the sermon. And, and, so, and here at Res, we have raised more than $15,500 for Team World Vision for clean water in, in, in the developing world. That's uh, 310 people um, just through the donations, through the folks in this congregation, people connected to it. Um, working with their local partners in Africa will be able to provide that much clean water. And so that is awesome. That's exciting. Nate? Yes, 60%. 60% of the race done for Brent, and he started at 8 in the morning, so that's very impressive. What? 7.30, sorry. Yeah, that'd be... Eat. Pastor Matt at 48%. So by the time we head home, they'll be almost done. And so those guys are running, running hard, but we got a hard task in front of us too uh, uh, this morning. And so... Um, you know, last weekend, it was a brutal experience, especially at the end. I said if it was a 20 or 21-mile race, I would have felt great. But those last 6.2 miles were, were a beast. They were a slog. And everything in my body just wanted to stop running and to walk. Uh, but I didn't. I kept running. And as I finished, I felt both elated and completely spent, like I wanted to die. It was this very weird mental place uh, to be in. You can ask, Amy Hardy uh, picked Forrest and myself up afterwards, and, uh, and, and, and Amy saw this sort of very weird mental dynamic that was taking place with me at that time. But So the literal running was over, but then the metaphorical running of this past week was just getting started. We had that afternoon, later that afternoon, the Greg Sarakoff Memorial here at church, and then Life Group on Tuesday and Wednesday and, and Thursday evening, we had these big congregational events for the Elevate campaign. Thank you to everyone who came for that uh, at Sisyphus. And then Friday, there was registering Greg for preschool, and, and, and then there was Aaron Dice's rehearsal, and then yesterday, his wedding, which, which took up the whole day. And so I really have felt this past week, like I started running um, at 8.02 on Sunday morning, and I haven't stopped. And then I get to preach on a passage like this. And, you know, part of me wants to just walk or go around it or take some sort of way of, of chopping it up a little bit so that I can make it sound like a nice, happy story of the ark coming to Jerusalem and everyone's worshiping and it's all good and it's fun and it's exciting. But then there's Uzzah and Michal, as Mike so wonderfully pronounced in the Hebrew, and committed me then to saying it that way for the whole sermon. If you had said Michael, I could have just said that, but now I have to say Michal the whole time. <laughs> but that's okay. That's it's part of running the race to the completion. We got to stick with it. And, and to be honest, when this text originally came to me in the lectionary, it was nice and chopped up in a way that made it sound like a good, happy story of an ark coming to Jerusalem. But when we are presented with texts like this that have these sort of uncomfortable parts that we'd rather cut out. I think we need to especially listen to what Scripture has to say. You know, there's no, hey, this will all make sense. This one weird trick will help you make sense of it all. Or, or, or no, explaining away, no hand-waving. I think when Scripture bothers us the most, it's our responsibility as people living under its authority to listen to what it has to say most intently uh, because these are the texts along with all of our, you know, John 3.16, all of our favorites that, that God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's three things I think I want to suggest to you that, that we can learn from this passage this morning, and, and they all surround worship. And it's first that worship is a dangerous thing. And the second is that it's a serious thing, and lastly, it's a joyous thing. 
And so here in this text, we see the danger of worship, the seriousness of worship, and the joy of worship. But before we get to those points, exactly just want to orient us to where we are in this story, because we're just kind of plopped down in the middle of it. But at this juncture in, in, the, in the history of God's people, the Israelites have gone through this period of great chaos. They, they came from slavery in Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness, and then they settled in the promised land, but they experienced this period of great chaos where there was no centralized rule. Everyone was doing what they wanted. It was the book of Judges captures this, and so they asked God for a king. They said, God, give us a king like all the other nations, and God said, well, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. I'm supposed to be your king, but I will give you what you're asking for. And so they get a king, and, and, and Saul is the first king over, over Israel. But then God rejects Saul and chooses David. He's the runt of his family. He's the shepherd boy, and God chooses him to be king over Israel. But Saul is still alive and still ruling, and Saul spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. And eventually, Saul dies, and David assumes his place as king, his place as king over all the tribes of Israel. And he defeats the, the Philistine menace, and he decides that he's going to build, you know, this is a new era, a new king, time to have a new capital, a new city um, that, that the people can all focus on. It'll be the center of religious and political power. And so he chooses Jerusalem. That's going to be that capital, you know, which persists to this day. And this is a, a fresh start. And in order to do this, David says, I'm going to make this not just the political center, but the religious center. I'm going to go get the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of God, and I'm going to bring it to Jerusalem as well. And the Ark was this, this gold-plated chest that contained um, Aaron's rod. So from the wilderness wandering time, Aaron's rod, you know, Moses' staff, uh, the same object. The, the tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments, a jar that had contained manna in the wilderness, and on top of it were the two cherubim, these sphinx-like angelic figures between whose wings the presence of God dwelled most intently. And in the old tabernacle, which was like the portable temple, it was the tent that the Israelites carried around with them for worship in, in the wilderness, the ark was kept in the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place, and, and there was this big, huge curtain that separated it from the rest of the sanctuary, and so only the high priest could enter into the presence of the ark in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And at first, the ark was this object for worship. But when the Israelites came into the promised land, it, it, it became this object used for war. The ark was what the Israelites carried around the walls of Jericho. And the ark was taken out into battle. It was seen as this kind of talisman, this good luck charm, that if you went into battle with the ark, there was no way that God was going to let you lose. But eventually, the ark was taken captive by the Philistines, and then all sorts of bad things happened to them, and so they returned it, and then the people decided it's just more trouble than it's worth to be carrying this ark around with us. You know, it always is getting us into mischief. Bad things are happening when we mistreat it. So they stashed it in storage in an obscure village on the border of, of Israelite territory, this place called Bale, Judah. And so our text begins with David. He's mustering this force of 30,000 warriors, but they're not marching out into battle but they're going to get the ark, to fetch the ark, and bring it out of obscurity to its new home in Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick the story up. And it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so, so far, so good. Right? This is a joyous picture of celebration and of worship, a festal procession celebrating the return of a long-forgotten sacred object to the center of national life. This is revitalization. This is renewal. I mean, what is wrong with this picture? What could possibly go wrong? And when they came to the, th- the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Worship is a dangerous thing. Now what's going on here? We instinctively read this text and we recoil and we think that's not fair. Could God really be that capricious that he'd strike someone dead for merely touching the ark? I mean, this seems unfair. He was just trying to keep it from hitting the ground. The oxen stumbled. It was a reaction. But here's what we're not aware of or we neglect to pay attention to as we encounter this story. There's there's so much wrong with what's happening here and the way they're treating the ark. See, Scripture gives very explicit rules about who can move the ark and how it's supposed to be moved. It's only supposed to be moved by people from the tribe of Levi, the priests. And then from within uh, the Levites, the priestly cast only from one very specific family. They're the only ones who can move the ark. And Uzzah doesn't fit that bill. And scripture is very clear that the ark is supposed to be moved by being carried with poles. So, you know, there's two rings on either, four rings and a set of two on either side. And you slip these poles through and you carry it on poles, you know, like that. You don't put it on a cart. And in Scripture, it's especially clear, expressly clear, that no one, not under any circumstances, are you supposed to touch the ark. It says, don't touch it, lest you die. And so the ark, it's, it's like a live electrical wire. It radiates that kind of power. You just don't touch it. And so here we have the wrong person transporting the ark in the wrong way, touching what was never supposed to be touched because it meant certain death. And even more than that, in in moving the ark around on a cart, they were actually copying the way that the Philistines had been moving the ark around, that they had been transporting it around. And so something sacred was being profaned. And so when we know all that, it, 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 it should come as less of a surprise that the Lord strikes Uzzah dead when he reached out and he touched the ark. And so we can say, okay, that makes sense according to the logic of Scripture, but what kind of logic is that? What kind of God is that that would do such a thing? And those are great questions. They're just the questions that naturally arise. But I think instead of dismissing this as a picture unworthy of the God we know in Jesus or as some strange fable, it, it ought to cause us some introspection. Why was what Uzzah did so bad? Why is worshiping in the wrong way so dangerous? And I think first, what this episode teaches us and and what it challenges us to take seriously is both God's holiness and human sinfulness. 
that those two realities are part of what we see here in worshiping the wrong way and the danger of worshiping the wrong ways. And God's holiness means that God is holy other, not H-O-L-Y other, but W-H-O-L-L-Y other. There's this infinite categorical difference between God and humanity, between the creator and the creature. And so for a sinful creature to come into contact with him is to be overwhelmed. It's to be obliterated. It'd be like, you know, trying to walk on the sun. God's holiness is like a, a nuclear furnace. His presence is so powerful and so intense. I mean, does it make sense when we think about it that way? To think that we could come into direct contact with the power that created the universe. The power that brought forth life. God's holiness means that, that God can't be domesticated or isn't domesticatable. There's something dangerous about God. Something strange and vastly unfamiliar. And so God must be treated as such. Scripture says in the Proverbs, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That wisdom, knowing how to live, that the art of living well, starts with the fear of the Lord. God is something to fear, someone to fear, in the sense of having the greatest respect for his power and his holiness. And it's actually not such a strange idea. You know, part of being a parent, part of raising children in the ways of wisdom, teaching them how to live wisely and well in the world, is teaching them to fear the right things. So we teach our kids to fear fire and water and fear crossing the street and and fear of getting into strangers' cars and fear of electrical outlets and fear of wandering away without telling us It's about learning to navigate the world by respecting those things that we ultimately cannot control and that we must interact with according to a certain set of rules and practices so that those encounters will be safe and productive. And besides God's holiness in this passage, we can consider our own sinfulness. Who am I to stand before a being of perfect love with my heart filled with all of its petty hatreds? Who am I to stand before a being of perfect truth with all the lies I've told? Who am I to stand before a being of perfect goodness with all of the evils that I've harbored in my own soul? Worship is dangerous because it brings sinful human beings into proximity with a God of perfect holiness. Worship is dangerous because it's about God, God whom we cannot contain, God whom we cannot control, God whom we cannot come into contact with without being utterly obliterated like a bright light utterly obliterates the darkness. God is powerful, God is wild, God is free. And we don't much care for that God, do we? We'd rather have a God that we can put in a box and that we can carry around on our own terms, sort of take them out when we want to, and where we want to, and how we want to, and then put them back. A God that we can control. And worship is dangerous because God will not be controlled in that way. And and the real danger, not just the danger of worshiping the wrong way, but actually what we see here happen with Uzzah and and Michal is the people in this passage who aren't worshiping while everyone else is worshiping. While all the singing and the dancing and the praising is going on, Uzzah is the person who's not actually worshiping. Instead of worshiping, he's managing what's happening. 
according to his own standards. And on this point of the people who aren't worshiping in this passage, our old friend, the late great pastor, theologian, translator of the message, Eugene Peterson, is helpful. He says, When the oxen stumble and Uzzah reflexively reaches out to keep the ark from sliding off, it's not an isolated act. It's Uzzah's habit to manage the ark. And supposedly, along with it, God in the ark. The eventual consequence of this kind of obsessional management of God is death, whether slow or sudden. God will not be put and kept in a box, whether the box is constructed of crafted wood or hewn stone or brilliant ideas or fine feelings. We do not take care of God. God takes care of us. Uzzah is the person who, instead of losing himself in the worship of God, has God in a box and assumes responsibility for keeping God safe from the mud and dust of the world. And the danger of not worshiping also helps us understand one of the other aspects of this story that that troubles us, Michal who disdains David. She sees him dancing around and she disdains him for debasing himself in worship. And we're told at the end of the passage that she was barren for the rest of her life. Now Michal is is Saul's daughter, so David's wife from the house of Saul, and she represents the royal and the aristocratic. She would never dream of behaving in a manner that was beneath her dignity, like a contemptible commoner that was beneath her and her status. And so while David and the people were worshiping, Michal was, was sitting there critically observing everything that was taking place. She was evaluating the performance based on its appearances. And how many of us have come to worship and we've done just that? We're not a participant. We're an observer. We sit there detached, evaluating everything that's going on and, and asking in our minds how it measures up according to whatever standards we apply You know, for clergy, this is a professional hazard whenever we go to worship, to not participate but to sit detached and judge. And it can be, too, if you participate in music or in leading worship. Anytime you're somewhere else, it can always be this evaluating, judging, observing game as opposed to worshiping and participating. Peterson says, to be present at the place of worship and to not worship is both common and dangerous. Refusal to worship the living God results in loss of life, death, as we see in Uzzah, or in barrenness with Michal. All right, so we've seen how worship is dangerous. But this passage also shows us what serious business worship is. And when I say serious, I don't mean serious in the sense of being dour or sort of everyone pretending like they're, you know, dull and at a funeral with a scowl on their face. No, no, the picture we get of worship in this passage is not serious in the sense like that. I mean, there's all kinds of dancing and celebrating going on. By serious, I mean that it's something that requires attentiveness and care and thoughtfulness and, and attention to detail. It requires planning and preparation. And most of all, it requires our presence. God wants us to show up in body, mind, spirit. And when you read through the Old Testament, you can't help but notice what serious business worship was. You're reading through the Old Testament, you get to the story of the Exodus, you know, you get the plagues, you get the crossing of the Red Sea, you get to Mount Sinai, and, and, and there's all sorts of pyrotechnics, and you get, you get the Ten Commandments and the law, and then all of a sudden it stops, and we get six chapters of detail about how to construct the tabernacle, about the rules for worship, what should people wear. 
That's what happens when when Uzzah is stricken dead and David leaves the ark with Obed-Edom. Worship is serious business, and so David needs to figure out how to do it before he dares take up the ark again. And David is the biblical figure most associated with worship. Depending on how you count it, it's Psalms, the book associated with David. That's either the longest or second longest book in the Bible. So a songbook is at the heart of Scripture. Shows us just what serious business worship is. And when we're serious in our worship and attentive to how God wants it to be done, then we can't help but miss the rhythm of biblical worship, which is the rhythm of the life of discipleship, that God reveals himself and we respond. God reaches out to us and we respond. Peterson, again, he says, there's a profound simplicity to worship, but it's an achieved simplicity for many things that are involved can go wrong. And it's extremely important to get this right. But as usual, the biblical account, instead of giving us a precise definition we can use, provides us with a story which we are invited to participate. When we listen well, that story shapes our imaginations of the nature and dangers of worship. And so the story of David bringing the ark to Jerusalem, it it skillfully weaves together these intricate threads that make up the tapestry of worship, entering this story. And we become, when we do that, aware of the intricacy and the simplicity of it. Worship begins here with with the ark, with, with divine revelation, who God is, what God has done, and how God has been present to us. That's the first element. And the ark provides the focus of that worship. It's a visual witness to God in specific terms. You know, salvation at the Red Sea with the staff, the revelation of the law at Mount Sinai with the stone tablets, providence in the wilderness with the jar of manna, and the overarching sovereignty of God with the cherubim atop. God is not a generalized abstraction, but a divine being with a history with his people. And the people's response in dancing and feasting as they process to Jerusalem, that's the second element The people let themselves be defined by the reality of who God is and what God has done, and then they respond appropriately. So worship is dangerous because it's dealing with a God who cannot be controlled, and it's serious because when we pay attention to it, we become aware of the pattern of life. God reaches out, we respond. That is part of the life of faith. But lastly, our passage shows us that worship is a joyful thing. Now, David dances before the ark of the Lord, and as I was studying the passage this week, I learned that he's actually the only uh, king in all of existent ancient Near Eastern literature that ever dances as an act of worship. And so why, despite, you know, we're told in this passage that he's angry at God, he's even afraid of God, why does he dance? And the key... I think to understanding it all comes in verse 21 when David responds to Michal's contempt, explaining of how he could lose himself in worship with, with such an unsightly you know, display of, of dancing and fervor. He says, it, he says it like this. He says, God chose me. David was who he was because of an act of sheer grace. David was who he was and we who we are because of what God has done and not the other way around. What can David's response or our response be to such a God other than joyful worship? And David celebrates and he, and he brings the ark to Jerusalem and he, and he makes a sacrifice after six steps. 
And when he brings the ark to the tent, you know, sacrifices are made before it. And this is fitting because when you entered into uh, the tabernacle and, and, and then later into the, the temple and the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies, between the worshiper and the ark was the altar. And it was there at the altar that you offered sacrifices as a mean of atoning for one's sin and reconciling oneself to God. And so between a holy and a dangerous God, there is sacrifice that allows the worshiper to enter into his presence. And as Christians, we can truly rejoice because the, the sacrifices that David is offering in our passage point beyond themselves to Jesus Christ, who it says in Ephesians, loved us and gave himself up as a sacrifice, a fragrant offering to God. And so Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. And his death means that no longer do we have to go first through the altar to get to the ark, to the presence of God. When he died, the veil in the temple was torn in two, and there is no longer this danger when we reach out to touch God because God has reached out and touched us, not to destroy us, but to make us whole, not to obliterate us, but so that his power can dwell in us. That's remarkable. Because through faith, you know, when we trust in him and we're, we're, we're baptized and symbolically we're, we're dying to sin and we're arising again as transformed, transformed creatures, the very, the very power of God's Holy Spirit that destroyed Uzzah now gives us everlasting life. And so in that, we rejoice. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.